Thanks so much, Randy. Um, if you are a kid, fifth grade or younger, now is the time to head to the patio for our gospel project. Um, as Randy said, my name's Josh, and I serve here as a pastoral resident. Um, and I'm so honored to get to share God's word um, with you this morning <clears throat> as we start in Colossians 3 today. So our text is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Um, and if you are in the Blue Bibles, that's on page 572. Um, so I'm going to start our time this morning reading Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So this is God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been moving through Colossians here at Church on Mill for the past several weeks. Um, we can think of Paul's letter to the Colossians um, as sort of a rehearsal of the story of Christ, the, the gospel. The gospel is a story. It's not just a concept or a philosophy or even a way of life, but it's the story of the world. It's God's story in Christ. And it's not a story that we simply listen to, but it's a story that we surrender ourselves to, that we become a part of. And through that, we are fulfilled in Christ. That's what we've been saying Colossians is all about, being fulfilled in Christ. This week, as we move into Colossians 3, we're turning a corner in the book. Um, we're getting to the point of the letter where Paul has reminded and rehearsed the Colossian church through uh, the story of Christ, and now he's going to show how that drives them to re-engage with their own lives, what their role in the story is. So remember with me how Paul has portrayed the story of Christ through Colossians. Several weeks ago, Brandon preached to us from Colossians 1, 15 through 23, which is the great Colossian hymn about Christ being preeminent. He is the image of invisible God. He is uh, before all things. He, in him, all things hold together. That is the Christ we worship. And I loved what Brandon said to introduce us to that passage, he said, let's not bring the Colossian hymn down to us, but let's get our heads in the clouds with Paul, where, where Christ is, up to rise to the level of that lofty language about Jesus. And that is, is that not what we just heard Paul say in Colossians chapter three here? Set your minds, seek the things that are above. Get caught up in the story of Christ. As we continued through Colossians the past three weeks, um, through the end of chapter one and chapter two, uh, Mike and Pastor Tad um, warned, showed how Paul warned us again and again against being caught up in counterfeit stories. So Mike talked about the plausible arguments or vain philosophies of the world that might lead us astray, and then Tad talked about um, our tendency to be, uh, our, our proneness to 
asceticism or legalism or mysticism. And the, the message is don't be caught up by other stories because we are in the one true story, the fulfilling story that you can build your life upon. We have the real thing. Don't get led astray by counterfeits. So as we enter uh, the final third of Colossians in chapter three here, we're gonna see how that Christ story shapes us. This is kind of the, the shift that happens in so many of Paul's letters from the theology, the story of Christ, into the application, our role in it. So uh, we're gonna see how the story shapes us. In, in the next two weeks, as we go through the rest of Colossians 3, it'll get very practical. That's where Paul's um, ethical commands are, the, the, the commands about our relationships with one another, with our family, about our lives. But this week, this is Paul's introduction into that. This is his turning point in the letter. This is how he chooses to make that shift into the application-heavy part of the letter. And so Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is emphasizing the mere fact that the story of Jesus transforms us. It's no mere story. It's a story that transforms us. So in light of that, here is our main point for Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It's simply that life in Christ's story always means transforming your desires and your mind. Life in Christ's story always means transforming your desires and your mind. In other words, the life that Christ gives us changes us. If we truly follow Christ, we don't walk away the same. We're transformed by it. We no longer are living our own stories. We've been transformed in his so we're gonna look at the text in three parts this morning. We're gonna begin with a condition, and we're gonna move on to two commands, and then a promise. A condition, two commands, and a promise. That'll be the, the shape of our time in Colossians 3, one through four this morning. So to begin with, the condition. Paul's condition here is that true life is always in Christ. Life in Christ's story means transforming your desires in your mind, so we need to begin with life in Christ. That's why Paul begins uh, our text this morning in verse one. He begins by saying, if then you have been raised with Christ. Because everything he's about to command in this text and the rest of Colossians 3 hinges on that point. It depends on being in Christ. Being in Christ is the ground of all the commands that Paul's gonna say. And that's crucial because we don't come to application or holy living in the Christian life as something towards being in Christ, but something as a result of being in Christ. Because we're in Christ, we live transformed lives. Being in Christ simply means being saved. It means believing in Christ and calling upon him for salvation and having God work the miracle of salvation in your heart. God putting your life in Christ, as Paul says it in verse three, having your life hidden with Christ. That's the story of God we're being called to join into, the story that shapes us, being in Christ. So friend, if you've not been caught up into this story, if you've not called upon Christ as your savior, and if God has not hidden your life in Christ, then do not expect 
to experience the type of transformation we're talking about today. First, call upon Christ as your Savior. Then transformation happens. But as it is in Colossians, Paul is writing to a church of people who have confessed Christ as their Savior. And so this could read in verse one something like, since it is true that you have been raised with Christ, this is what your life should look like. This is what the life in Christ looks like. Which brings us to our second point, the two commands, which is where we're gonna spend the majority of our time in Colossians 3, one through four this morning. So we'll take them both in turn. Our first command comes in verse one. Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So the command is seek, seek the things that are above. From that we get this point, life in Christ's story always means transforming your desires. But where do we get desires from seek the things above? You know, it's packed into that word seek. Seek is a desire word. It's a word of affection. The, the word Paul uses in the original language can mean something as simple as to look for or to search for, but the way Paul's using it here, it has a, 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 de- a deeper meaning. It's, a, it's an ongoing sort of seeking, a, a lifestyle sort of seeking habitual. It's really similar to Jesus' use of the same word in Matthew 6.33. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. It's, it's active and ongoing, pursue, um, desire. So what does it mean to seek the things that are above? Paul tells us immediately, in case we could be confused, that above is where Christ is. To seek the things above is to seek Christ. Christ is the sum of every good thing above. Every good thing above is fulfilled in Christ, so seek Christ. Now, maybe, just as an aside here, when you hear verses like this in the Bible, they sound hyper-spiritualistic to you, or kind of monkish. Like Paul is saying, seek the holy, fancy, spiritual things, and not the dirty earthly things, which, which makes you kind of detached from this life or this world, as if to say, you know, this world's all gonna burn, so seek the spiritual things instead. And, and that's, that's an interpretation throughout church history that's led people to detach from their lives, to detach from their neighbors and their churches and their, their responsibilities and the people in their lives and to view the gospel as something to listen to and twiddle your thumbs while you wait for Christ to return. But that is to treat the story of Jesus like a fantasy or an escapist story and not as a transformative story to build your life upon. And so we know that's not what Paul means here, detaching from your life. And we know that because, like we said, These verses are the introduction into all of Paul's commands about our lives. Paul's about to start talking about, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, how to engage with our families, our neighbors, our church members, our, the the world, our lives today. 
So this story of Christ is an active one that has a transformative effect on you today in this life. Our life in Christ's story is active, one with holy, heavenly desires. But that means Paul's command to seek the things above, if that means today, if that means now, it is so much more radical of a command because he's starting here with our hearts. Our desires, as we'll talk about, are outpourings of our hearts. So Paul is talking about us, we we can use this as a metaphor, Paul's talking about us in Colossians 3, think of it like we're, we're computers. And, and the rest of chapter three, when he talks about this is how you should relate to different people, this is what you should do, those are the, the applications we need to run, the operations we need to do, the, the things we need to download. But before any of that, he introduces the section by saying, you need a whole new operating system. This needs to begin from the inside out. This needs to change everything because it gets down to what you're seeking. Paul is telling us, that when we commit to follow Jesus, when we call him Lord, we need to transform from the inside out because we surrender control over our desires, over what we're seeking. So, so what are desires? What does it mean to be seeking something? Our desires, like we said, are reflections of our hearts. They reveal what we love. All of us desire something. All of us desire what we love. And because of that, that shapes what we're seeking. And again, we are all seeking something. As one of your own poets has said, everybody's looking for something. Sweet dreams are made of these. We're seeking what we love. We look for what we love. Because of that, our desires end up determining everything we do. What we do is shaped by what we love. For that reason, some translators translate verse one as set your hearts on the things that are above. They translate that word seek as set your hearts on to communicate the, the, the connection between what we seek and our hearts. Set your hearts on the things that are above. So that's what's revolutionary about following Christ here. When you live in Jesus' story and not your own, you receive your values. You receive what you're to love. You receive what your desires are from Christ. You're called to love what Christ loves. You're called to seek and want what he most wants. And the challenge of that is that inevitably, that will mean at points giving up what you most love and what naturally you most want. So let's say we want to obey this command. Let's say I want to seek the things that are above as as Paul calls us to. How do we even know what we're seeking? How can I tell if I am seeking the things that are above? That sounds awfully abstract. How do I know what I'm seeking? The first step is understanding that our actions flow out of our hearts, out of what we most love. So our our actions, everything external to us, that includes what we do, that includes how we speak, 
That includes what we spend our time on, what we spend our money on. It includes our daily habits. It includes what we sacrifice other things for in order to pursue. Even our emotions are part of our actions. Our emotions are reflections of and responses to what we love. They reveal our hearts. All of these things reveal what we most love and they reveal what we're seeking. So if you want to know what you're seeking, an exercise you can do is to work from the fruits to the roots in your life. You can work back from the symptoms in your life, from the actions in your life, and trace them back asking, what does this action in my life, this emotion, this habit, what does it say about what I love? What does it reveal about my heart? So let's, let's think of this through a couple examples. Let's take emotions as an example because emotions feel passive. They feel like they're things that just happen to us. And in a sense they are, but they, they reveal our hearts. So let's take anger, especially since anger feels unrelated to love. But anger is a response to what you love being threatened. We feel angry when what we're seeking is threatened. In my life, I have struggled at times with feeling overly angry over dumb things. And maybe you, you can relate. For example, in high school, I played in a recreational street hockey league, of all things. And it was fun, but I would get overly angry when I'd lose or when somebody else was not uh, rising up to my standards of sportsmanship or something like that, um, which is funny because I am not an athlete. It's funny that I got so angry over something like this, um, but it was, a, it was a overly personal, not leaving it on the court sort of angry. So it's, it's really easy to look back at 16-year-old me and think, well, I was a teenager and I had a bad temper and I was immature and didn't know how to control it. And it's true that there are factors in our lives like immaturity or our brain chemistry that, that lead us to have stronger or, or, or weaker degrees of emotion, but that's not the point. The point is that I felt angry at all and I would not have felt that way even if I could have controlled that. I would have not felt that way if something were not true of my heart. So since I know my emotions and my actions flow out of my heart, I have to look at my anger and ask, what is it that I'm seeking? What is it that I love that feels threatened right now? What feels threatened when I'm angry? Usually what I find is that my anger comes from me loving myself too much, from me seeking to compose my own story and something else, whether that's a competitor in a sports game or a delay in traffic or something impinging on my personal time, something else gets in the way of that and my seeking of myself is threatened and so I feel angry. So I find that my anger, even if it's over something dumb, but the hockey game's not the point. My heart is the point. My anger reveals that I'm not seeking the things above. So take as an opposite example, comp compare this with Jesus' righteous anger. Jesus got angry. 
Maybe, maybe in the most famous example, when he turns the thieves and the merchants out of the temple. Um, Jesus' anger likewise revealed his heart. It revealed what he most loved, and it turns out Jesus loved most the glory of God, the proper worship of God, and the sinful practices of the temple that desecrated that and that threatened that made him angry. But he was seeking the things above, and his anger revealed that. His actions matched up with seeking the things above. And so in both cases, whether it's a sinful example or a righteous example in Christ, in either case, our actions reveal what we love. They reveal what we're seeking. One more example we should consider are our habits, our daily, regular habits. They reveal very tellingly what we love and what we're seeking, partly because we do them sort of automatically. A big one that I've had to consider in my life, and I'm sure many of us have, is time spent on entertainment or, or media, watching TV, YouTube, Netflix, video games, whatever it is, time spent on entertainment. The point's not that it's wrong to watch TV or be entertained by things, but just like our emotions, it's so easy to write it off as, hey, I come home from work, I've got my me time, a couple hours of TV, no big deal. But when we devote hours habitually to something, it behooves us to know why, to ask ourselves, what am I seeking when I am pursuing this? What am I looking for when I devote hours regularly to the same thing? Once again, I've often found that what this reveals about my heart is that I'm seeking myself, that I subconsciously, through my actions, show that I believe I am worth devoting that much time to pleasing and entertaining. So whether it's, whether it's our emotions like anger or fear or sadness, whether it's our habits, whether it's what moves us deeply, what we spend time and money on, the point of Colossians 3.1 is not that these things are all necessarily bad. Colossians is pushing us instead to question them, to ask what they reveal about our hearts, and then to ask ourselves, am I seeking Christ primarily? So hear this in thinking about your life. Nothing in your life is too small or too menial to be transformed by the gospel. Nothing in your life is too big or untouchable to be transformed by the gospel. If, in fact, we are a part of Christ's story, if that is the transforming thing that we're building our lives upon and being fulfilled by, nothing is too intimate or personal to be transformed by the gospel. Because living in Christ's story means surrendering our control, our sovereignty over our desires and giving them to him to be shaped by him so that we seek what he seeks. So we should survey our hearts, survey our actions and ask what they reveal about what we most love. But here is the unfortunate truth. I promise you it's going to be a discouraging exercise because each of us is naturally prone to love the wrong things. When we say we're born sinners, that's what that means. It means our hearts are bent towards loving things less than God, towards seeking things that aren't above. 
So we can and should search our hearts to find what we love and what we're seeking, but we'll always find that we're seeking something less than Christ. And we'll find that if it truly is a reflection of our heart, how do you change your heart? But the good news is, our condition that we started with, that the starting point of this is life is in Christ. That Christ starts the transformation and that's why it's such a crucial part of the gospel that the Holy Spirit, when God hides our life in Christ, that the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart and a new spirit, as Ezekiel 36, 26 says. The Holy Spirit takes out the old, wrong-loving battery of our heart and puts in a new one that is able to love the right things. Otherwise, we're powerless to transform our own hearts. But Romans 5.5 says, God has poured out his own love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And that's not just a poetic way of saying that God loves us, but more than that, it's saying that God has filled up our hearts with his own love. He's given us the power to love the right things. So, if you are in Christ, if you are a part of this story, you have this great resource at your disposal. You have the new power in your heart. So, as Galatians 5.25 says, since we live by the Spirit, Let's keep in step with the Spirit. That's how Paul can command us, seek the things that are above, since you have been raised in Christ. Since you've been raised in Christ, you can. So, for us now today, seeking to look at Christ's story as something that transforms our lives today, with an eye towards eternity, but today, how do we seek the things above better? Especially, if it's the Holy Spirit's work to get the ball rolling, how do I grow in this? What does it look like to seek the things above better? As we've said, the rest of Colossians 3 is going to get into a lot of specifics, so stay tuned. But for now, as a starting point, hear this. If you want the Holy Spirit to work in your life, if you want to seek the things that are above, if you want your heart and your love's transformed, live your life in God's church. Consider that Paul calls the church in Ephesians 2.22 the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the place where the Spirit lives, dwells, and works. We can't overstate how much, just in general, how much who we habitually spend our time with shapes us. Who we habitually spend our time with shapes us. But that is even more so the case in the church because when we gather together as believers, we are gathering together with our brothers and sisters who are powered by the same Holy Spirit that we are. And the reality of life in the church is that we are a means that God uses to transform one another. So if you want your heart transformed, live your life, joining into God's mission, joining into God's household in the church. Live habitually, openly and honestly with your brothers and sisters in Christ because we are a ministry of the Spirit to one another. We are a means that God uses to transform one another. I need you to transform me and vice versa. We need each other to transform one another. 
And that doesn't mean just attending church and expecting that to have a magical effect on your life, but it means living, like we said, openly and honestly, confessing openly with trusted brothers and sisters those areas of your life where you are not seeking the things above and practicing the holy art of repentance with one another, calling each other out on each other's sins, exposing our hearts so that the Holy Spirit who lives in both of us, by his power we can be transformed. So, if you are in Christ, and if you are over time seeking the things above, if you are making a practice of this, you will see change in your life. That's what it means to say life in Christ's story always means transforming your desires. You will see your heart change. You will feel your desires shift. And therefore, your actions will change. And the good news of this is, while it may begin as a process of self-denial, of giving up what you'd rather do in order to do what Christ calls you to, a transformed heart means that over time, you will come to love the things that, love, that, that Christ loves. You will come to delight in the things that he's called you to do. Seeking the things above will become natural to you and a joy to you. Again, over time, but you will end up loving it. It will be a joy. So seek the things that are above where Christ is. So that brings us to our second command. Set your minds, Paul says, on things above, not on things that are on earth, in verse two. And from this we get the point, life in Christ's story always means transforming your mind. So set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. It looks like at first glance Paul has just repeated what he said in verse one a second time. But we should take notice of the fact that Paul has changed the command word here. First, he said seek, which as we said, has to do with our desires, our hearts, what we love. But now he has said, set your mind. That word, it, set your mind, is one word in the original language. It can mean, again, as something as simple as think, like think about the things that are above. But just like with seek, Paul is using it in an ongoing, habitual, lifestyle sort of way. Really similar to when Paul uses the same word in Philippians to say, have this mind among you, to the church in Philippi. Have a way of thinking that's characterized by this. So this idea of setting your mind on the things above, it means more than just thinking about God. It means more than just believing that the story of Jesus is true. It means more than saying yes and amen to the Colossian hymn in Colossians 1. Further, setting your mind on the things above means having your whole understanding, your whole framework of seeing the world transformed by Jesus. So to seek the things above means to desire them, to love them. But we can't love what we don't know. Before we love something, we need to be acquainted with it. We need to know it. Think, for example, if you're married. You knew your spouse before you loved him or her. First, you knew their appearance and their personality, and their character, their strengths and weaknesses, their flaws, their quirks, 
their values. And then through that, you came to love them. And loving them, you came to desire them. And desiring them, you began to seek them. And the rest is history, right? That's true of anything we love. We know it or experience it, and then through that, come to love it. And the same is true of God. We love God because he allowed us to know him. And, and not just to know him, but to know him in such a way that reveals he's lovely. It's through God revealing to us that every good thing we have is from him, through God revealing to us that though we're sinners, Christ died for us and gave us an opportunity for life. It's through these true things we know about God that God has revealed that he is worth loving, and so we've come to love him. So, in Colossians 3, 2, Paul, speaking to Christians, says, you Christians who love God, who know God, he's calling them to continually know him more and more, to continue setting their minds on him and what he sets his mind on. So setting your mind on the things above, setting your minds on God is a way of seeking him. It's a way of loving him. So living in Jesus' story needs to transform the way we think transform our imagination, which is the way we, we see and put the world together and make sense of it. All of that needs to be shaped by God's truth to begin seeing the world as God sees it. You receive your truth from him. So again, we need to ask, how do we grow in this regard? Say we want to set our minds on the things above how do we do that more and more? What does that look like? The answer is relatively simple. We, we set our minds on the things above by knowing God through God's word. God has made himself knowable in his word, in the Bible. Further, God has promised that he will lead his people to know him better and better. He will instruct them through reading scripture. So maybe this piece of application sounds obvious to you or trite to you if you've been a Christian for a long time. Read your Bible, you know. But the, uh, so, so I don't mean this to be a nagging uh, piece of application or, or a burden or certainly not to fall on deaf ears. But what I want to show here is how Colossians 3, 2 uniquely shows us the value of reading Scripture of why it is good to read scripture, why it's a blessing to us. Setting our minds on the things above and not on the things of earth is impossible without knowing scripture deeply, frontwards and backwards. So the key here is not simply that we should read our Bibles, but how we read our Bibles, or to what end we sit down to read scripture. How can we engage with scripture to the end of setting our minds on the things above. So think of it this way. If you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, you know Christ and you know his story. But as we've been saying this whole time, Christ's story is not just a story to know, it's a story to set your mind on and be transformed by. So we sit down to read scripture to be transformed by it. When we have scripture preached in our gathered 
worship, or our worship gatherings, we listen to it to be transformed by it. When we read with fellow church members, we read to be transformed. When we read privately, we sit with Scripture to be transformed by it. So this, this is an urgent call because I promise you, your mind is set on something. As a matter of fact, your mind is set on something. The question is just what? Whatever we regularly and uncritically expose our minds to shapes us. To be specific, for example, when we listen to Fox News or CNN uncritically week in and week out, that begins to shape us. What we think is true, what we think is plausible, what we think the issues are. When we watch movies or media or listen to musicians and hear stories uncritically, they start to inform the way we see reality, what we think of as good, how we make decisions. They shape our wisdom. When we listen regularly to social media influencers or podcasters or celebrities or whatever, they begin to shape us. We take on their image. So to be clear, the point is not that you should never listen to the news or that you should never watch movies. The point is not that you should never listen to podcasts or enjoy music. That's not the point. Just like we said, this is not an escapist, detached from the world type of message. This is a live your life in a transformed way in God's story message. So the point is not that you should never listen to these things. The point is that if you consume these different voices as your primary uh, lens of information. If you're consuming them more than the Word of God, they will become your primary lens of understanding the world rather than God's truth. So, it is urgent that we set our minds on the things above through God's Word. So practically, that means we read Scripture to be transformed. That means we don't appro uh, approach Scripture simply as an encyclopedia of fun facts about God. We don't approach scripture as something that's primarily there to make us feel better about ourselves or feel good about ourselves. We don't approach scripture as something that should always entertain us. And we don't even approach scripture as a how-to guide to fix whatever problem I'm most imminently dealing with in my life. The Bible might help us in those ways. It might be good for those things, but the primary thing that God has given us scripture for is to transform us. Now, that means the Bible may offend us at times. It may confuse us. It may hurt, our, hurt us at times. It may surprise us. It might bore us at times, but all of those are ways of God confronting you with his truth and showing us where we don't yet match up to that. It's a gracious way that God confronts us with the image that he wants us to conform to. So this means this is a call for us to read all of scripture, New Testament and Old. So think, if you're a new believer, maybe you've never read the whole Bible. And that's okay, there's no need to feel embarrassed about that or guilty about that, but get reading. Don't deprive yourself of the opportunity to know and love God better. Scripture is a blessing to you. But the same is true even if you've been a Christian for a long time. Have you read all of Scripture? 
If not, get reading. But, but even if you have, all of us, there are surely parts that you haven't read in years or books that you understand less. But since scripture is God's word to us here to transform us, it's okay if not all the books are as interesting to us, but that shouldn't turn us off from them. We need to trust, as Paul promises to Timothy, that all of God's words are breathed out by him in Scripture. All of his words are useful for instruction, for shaping us to godliness. So you'll know that through Scripture you're setting your mind on the things above when, once again, over time, over the trajectory of your life, you start to think and make judgments according to Scripture. You will start asking the questions the biblical writers ask. You'll start being excited by what excites them. You'll even start, you'll have your wisdom shaped by the Bible. You'll come to a problem in life and think, I can't imagine any of the New Testament writers thinking this way you'll start to learn to think along the grain of Scripture, with the flow of Scripture, with its tone, knowing not just the stories in the Bible, but the unified story of the Bible, the one story told through many voices. And ultimately, you'll start to love God and love his people more and more. That's what it means to have a biblically transformed mind, for God to give us graciously his wisdom through his word. That's what it looks like to have your mind set on the things that are above. So we've heard our condition, that true life is in Christ. We've heard, <clears throat> excuse me, our two commands to set our hearts and set our minds on the things above. So now we can conclude with the promise. The promise is that reforming your heart and mind in Christ is the way of life. It's worth it, in other words. Hear what Paul says about this in verses three and four. Having given the two commands, Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So why should we bother with any of this? Especially in the midst of a, our, our culture, which tells us that writing your own story is what your life is all about. That creating an identity for yourself is the meaning of life. Our culture that tells us, find yourself, follow your heart, write your own story. Why should we pay attention to what this is saying when Paul is asking us to have our stories erased and be rewritten into Christ's? Why should we surrender control over what we love and what we're seeking and have somebody else tell us what to seek? Why should we allow the Bible to shape what we think is true? How can I stand up here and tell you that it is good? And, and more to the point, how could Paul write to a church centuries ago, a church just like this one, and insist to them that this is the right, the right thing to do, the good thing to do? Well, Paul answers those questions by giving a glimpse of the end here in verses three and four. Not just the end of time, but the end towards which all of this is working. 
He shows us what our transformation in Christ looks like when it is complete. And he shows that Christ is your life. Because you are in him, he will present you with glory at the end. So hear this. Christ never calls us to give up anything that he will not replace with something eternally better. Christ never calls us to give up anything that he will not replace with something better. The Christian life is not self-denial for self-denial's sake. It's not self-effacement for self-effacement's sake. It's self-denial for glory's sake. Because the truth is that the life you write for yourself in your own story is no life at all. There is no life apart from Christ who is your life. Being rewritten into Christ's story is the way to life. And because what, what Paul is pointing at when he says you will appear in glory is to say that that is actually the happiest way you can be. That's what you were made to be, to be glorifying God, reflecting his glory like a mirror for eternity, free from sin, no more sin, no more loving and seeking the wrong things, and through that, no more need for self-denial. No more need for transformation because the work is complete. And as we said, you will love and delight in the good things of God. Not having to grit our teeth anymore to choose God's way instead of our own, but having our hearts transformed. That is the happiest, the most joyful, the most alive we can be. The reality is, Paul gives us this image of the end because he knows it doesn't feel that way right now. Even if you've been a Christian for 30 years, it probably doesn't feel that way right now. But the promise is, that is the end that is on its way. That's where this is all leading. Just like what we seek in earthly things is leading somewhere, so seeking the things above is leading somewhere glorious, somewhere joyful. That is our promise. It's worth it. More so than anything else. It's worth it. So let's allow Christ to steal us out of our old desires and our old way of thinking. And let's allow him to rewrite us into life in his story because that is the way of life and joy and glory. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your grace and the love you've shown to us in revealing yourself to us. God, we pray that you would transform us in our minds and in our hearts and drive us to seek you toward the end that you'll present us in glory. And we give you great praise for the joy that's available to us by your grace in Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Uh, what a helpful sermon on the transformed life of the Christian. And church, I pray that we would be a people who set our minds on the things above. Uh, now, church, uh, this is the time you could normally give of your offerings, so I want to remind you you can do that in the black boxes in the back and also at churchonmail.org slash give, and we appreciate you doing that. It allows us to continue the ministries of the church. And I also have two announcements for you before we head out today. If you're new, uh, we want to welcome you, and maybe you've been visiting the church this summer and you're curious what we're about. Well, we are having a membership class on Saturday, July 31st. 
And in this class, we're going to dive into all that Church on Mill is, does, and believes. And so if you have a question, we'd love to have you. It's going to be 9 to 4 with a lunch break at noon. So uh, put July 31st on your calendar and plan to attend. And then uh, if you would like to RSVP, you can email gracie at churchonmill.org. That's gracie at churchonmill.org. And then the other announcement I have for you, church, is this week is VBS. <laughs> yeah. Finally here. Uh, the adults are more excited than the kids, and uh, it's going to be a great time. Uh, this whole stage is going to be transformed. We're going to have kids in here singing songs, playing games, and we're going to share the gospel with them in a way that they can understand. And so uh, if you're volunteering with VBS, we just want to say thank you. Uh, we really care about our kids. We want them to know the gospel, to grow up, to be people who love God. And if you're not serving, please pray for them. Pray for our volunteers. Pray for the kids uh, as we get a chance to minister to them.